0: Titled this morning, morning sermon, the king is dying. Next week we'll preach on the king is dead. This is this generation is the uh, the generation of digital media, digital photos. If I had my phone, I don't. But you know, you can open up your album and just see. Uh, and my and my daughter a teenager, and she always, like, when we take pictures, she always gets on me, because like, she'll say, um, could you take a picture of us, or could you take a picture of me, and I'll take one picture. That ain't enough. Yeah, you gotta just hold the button down and let it go. You know, and so the album is filled with, like, it's like, it, it, it looks like 50 pictures of the same thing. But see, I grew up, and I grew up when you used to take a picture and then take it over to the CVS and, and, and wait about a week for them to be developed. Dang, I'm getting old. <laughs> but growing up, a photo album, we actually didn't do photo albums. Where's Mama Kay? She's sitting there. I know, you go over to the, the Comoroski's, they just got like, bookshelves of photo albums like take the picture print it put it in the album and there's something special about that because you rarely ever scroll through all those photos on digital media but you will sit down and look at a photo album and so when I was growing up we weren't as sophisticated as photo albums we had like a shopping bag (laughs) and we just threw all the photos in there that's where they were. And every once in a while, when my, and my brother, when my brothers were really bored, we would get the bag out and look at these snapshots. You know, we'd just throw them all over the floor. Ah, look at this one. Dad. Ah, look at the, You know, we'd look at all of them. And we'd seen them so many times. But then we were done. We'd gather them all up into a pile and throw them back into the bag and then open it up again when we wanted to look at some family photos. They were just snapshots of life. A lot of them Polaroids. Just a moment in time. I often like to think about Jesus and the disciples and what a snapshot. If you could take the photos that, that Peter took, that, that Jesus took, that, that Thomas took, that Andrew took. If you could just have those pictures that Mary took. If you could have them in a bag and you throw them on the floor and you sorted through them, what would you see? I love in my mind, I see the, the 11 disciples, perhaps, or perhaps even with Judas there, I see in my mind's eye all of them standing there for a photo. And I'll bet you, you couldn't pick Jesus out. How could you? You wouldn't know any of them. Now, if you showed a video, I think you'd find out real quick who Jesus was. But you show a snapshot. I don't think you could pick him out. What John is doing here is giving us some snapshots. It's like the pictures are all on the ground, and we're going to reach out and grab a couple. They're vivid snapshots of the end of Jesus' life and what is happening to him right now. And what we're going to do is we're going to look Add a few snapshots to move through the text, and then we're going to close with just some application on what these, these snapshots show us and what we can learn from them, what we learn about Jesus, and what are the implications for us. So the first snapshots, you picture all those photos on the ground, and then you grab one, and you pick it up, and... It's a picture of a man who's been beaten badly, and on his back, he's carrying a wooden beam. He's bent over, and it appears that he's tired and suffering, and he's carrying a wooden beam. Now, when it says that Jesus carried his cross, what a lot of painters and artists have done, and probably what you have in your mind, you have the picture of a cross, like what we think of when we think of a cross, and you have this picture of Jesus bearing that entire cross. That's not what happened. The the post that Jesus was hung on was already in the ground. What he carried was the cross beam. He carried the part that they were going to nail him to. So he's carrying this beam. And the synoptic gospels tell us that Jesus was so, so beaten, so had suffered so much from the beating, that third-level flogging that the Romans gave. It was so bad that he wasn't actually physically able to carry his cross. And they grabbed a, a, a bystander, Simon of Cyrene, and he actually. So that would be one of your photo albums, too. There'd be a picture of someone that we didn't know, Simon. And he's finishing the carrying of Jesus' cross. He's carrying that cross because he's going to be crucified, crucifixion, invented by the Persians, developed by the Carthaginians, perfected by the Romans, Cicero says it was the most cruel punishment ever in history. He said, a writer, that it was so horrific and so awful that he was incapable of describing it to you. A Roman would never, a Roman citizen, no matter how heinous your crime, would never, ever, ever be crucified the way Jesus was. Romans didn't do that to one another. So when we're looking through these photos, at one point you will see a photo of Jesus with his, laying on his back with his arms outstretched, and they're nailing him, his hands, his wrists, to that crossbeam. What a day with the photo album, right? Nailed to the cross. It says he went out. So they took Jesus and he went out. Went out where? Where'd he go? He went outside. Outside where? He went outside the city where the trash was, where the sewage was. Because you don't leave a dying criminal, you don't crucify someone in an area that you want kept clean. So you take them outside the city. You take them out to where the trash is deposited. Where the lepers are and the criminals are and all of societal's outcasts. That's where Jesus went out. They nailed him to the cross and then they took that that horizontal cross beam and the soldiers would raise that up onto the vertical post and somehow they attached it, whether it was tied or nailed, they attached that beam to the cross and then they nailed Jesus' feet to the center beam. They also, on these crosses, one thing that's an important little detail to remember is they put a little shelf right underneath your feet. Anybody know why they did that? They put a little shelf there so that when you were hanging on the cross and your body weight was pulling you down, asphyxiating you, they put that little shelf there so that you could push up if you could with your feet just a little bit and get a little lung in your, a little air in your lungs. How nice of the Romans. They didn't do it to help you. They did it to prolong your torture. You think, why would anybody push up? It's involuntary. You want to breathe. Have you ever thought you were going to drown? You swim for the surface. It's involuntary. This is the snapshot. It tells us also that Jesus, there's a snapshot where he is crucified. He's hanging on the cross, and we're told that two other people are next to him. Criminals, probably the henchmen and friends of Barabbas, the one that got released. And this, we're told, is in fulfillment of scriptures. In the fulfillment of scriptures. We see this over and over again. John is helping us to see that Jesus, the plan of, of Jesus' death on the cross was a fulfillment of scripture. So Psalm twenty two sixteen, 16. A company of evildoers has surrounded me. Isaiah 53. He was numbered among the transgressors. One, two, three. That's a snapshot of the crucifixion. Let's look at another snapshot. We reach into the pile and we grab one and we see that there is a sign hanging on his cross. And we're told what it says Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Three languages talk about that and the implications. And there's an argument there with the, the Jewish leaders and Pilate. They say, don't, don't label it. Now, actually, that placard that they put on top of the cross, they did that for all criminals. The, the, the other two probably, it tells, Scripture tells us that they were robbers, probably had that. They were insurrectionists, most likely. Probably labeled what they were, whatever their punishment was, whatever their crime was, it was placed on the cross. Why to deter you, if you ever get it in your mind, to act like these three, this is what's going to happen to you if you commit this kind of crime. It actually helps to deter those kind of crimes. So, so Jesus would have had this placard, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and somebody would have been carrying that on their way to the cross. So as they paraded Jesus to the cross, someone would have carried it. Here is his crime. King of the Jews. And so they, 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 they march him to, the, to Golgotha and they crucify him. They take that sign. They put it on top of his cross. Another snapshot. If you dare... I want you to imagine what you see, Jesus on the cross. He's naked on the cross. Shame. The Romans, when they took their criminals or when they conquered other, all the officers, if the Romans conquered you, they marched you through town. All the officers stripped naked to humiliate you. We know that Jesus was naked because they divided up his clothing. They took his clothing off, and they nailed him to the cross. I was talking with Amy this week. Can you, can you imagine? I have children. I have sons. I just imagine them hanging on a cross. He's innocent, hanging there naked. Can you imagine, moms, can you imagine like Mary standing there looking at your son being ridiculed and then nailed to a cross? Can you imagine what is going through her mind? The shame. We're told that They divided up his clothing. He probably had five pieces of clothing. There were four soldiers. Always four four Roman soldiers took care of the crucifixion. So what did he have on? He had a robe, his outer covering. You can picture this. You can see, you've seen pictures of the way they dressed in the ancient Near East. He had a robe on. They also oftentimes had head coverings or scarves. So one of the soldiers got the robe. Let me get that. And then one of the soldiers said, give me the scarf. Give me the head covering." And then one of them said, let me get the belt. And then the last thing he was wearing were his sandals. Let me get those. But then they got to his tunic, that seamless undergarment, and they couldn't, there's one more piece of clothing, but there's four of us. What are we going to do? We can't cut it off, and it won't be any good anymore. So what do they do? Get the dice out. Let's go. We're going to roll for this. They cast lots for it, and one of them got it. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen: 18, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Listen, the Romans weren't doing that because they were like, yo, guys, we got to fulfill the Scripture. They didn't know that God was using them to fulfill prophecy and Scripture. This is a snapshot that we see. And I've thought about this too. I'm going to give you guys an idea that I haven't really formulated. Dangerous. (laughs) But I'm going to let you in on it. I imagine those soldiers later wearing Jesus' clothes. Where'd you get that belt? King of the Jews. Who wore Jesus' undergarment? They are clothed in Jesus clothing. And then I thought, so am I. <laughs> Jesus took the shame and guilt and and, and Punishment that I deserved. And the scriptures say that now I'm, what's it say, church? Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. If you're in Christ, you're wearing Jesus' clothes. You're clothed in his righteousness because he took the robes of your unrighteousness and bore them, put those on, and took the punishment that we deserved. One more snapshot. Another snapshot, we reach into the pile, we sort through it, and we pull one out, and it's Jesus on the cross and a tiny little gathering of people. We're told some of their names. Mary, his mother for sure, Mary Magdalene. There's this Mary, the wife of Clopas, who might be his mother's sister, or the mother's sister might be unnamed. We don't know. We know it's a small group of women, and there is one disciple there. It's the disciple of John who's writing this account. Interesting that Mary, the wife of Clopas, who potentially is Mary's sister, is is connected to John because Mary, the wife of Clopas, is John and Andrew's mother. Sons of Zebedee, which tells us then if, if, that, if, the, if John is linking Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary, his mother's sister, then that means that just like John the Baptist, John is a cousin of his. It's not that important to the story, he's still the beloved disciple. But it does shed maybe perhaps some light on why he's standing there and why he's so close to Jesus. Women, you know, Christianity, pro-lifers don't care about women. Jesus definitely cared about women. So we ought to care about women. Women get the women show up in a powerful way in the Gospel of John. The disciples, where are they? Other than John. Last ones at the cross, first to the tomb. Women. Jesus And we'll talk about this in a second. But Jesus looks to John and says to him, behold, your mother. He looks to John. I got that wrong, didn't I? He's he's telling John that Mary is now his mother. He's telling Mary now that John is now her son. Jesus had brothers. You know this, right? He had physical brothers. It could have, that should have gone to them. James, who wrote the book of James, is the brother of Jesus. Obviously not yet a believer. One day becoming a believer. But Jesus entrusted the care of his dear mother to John, the beloved disciple, not to James, his brother. It's a powerful walk through the snapshots. All of these are horrific snapshots so we can't lose sight of the ultimate perspective, which is one of victory, not defeat. So we got to keep looking at these snapshots because we're going to learn some things in the coming weeks as we, as we finish the Gospel of John. The crucifixion is Jesus' crowning moment. The cross is Jesus' throne. The crucifixion is where Jesus accomplishes the work that God gave him to do, to seek and save sinners. Palm Sunday, a week prior to this, what were they saying? Your king is coming. Here he comes. One week later, Pilate tells them, here is your king. Here hanging on the cross, dying, is Jesus the king. So I just want to give us three things. We, we, what type of king is Jesus there as he's hanging on the cross? Three things I want to give to you. He's a hidden king. We'll move through these pretty quickly. He's a hidden king. The claim of Jesus' kingship seems It seems nonsensical. I mean, you pull this snapshot out and someone says, there he is, the king of glory. Is that what you come up with when you look at this scene? You wouldn't. If ever there was a king in history who who looked less kingly, hanging there naked, crucified like a criminal on a Roman cross, it was Jesus. What we learn here is that Jesus' kingship is hidden. In other words, reason alone will not lead you to the right verdict of what is happening on the cross. You need something else to happen. If you look at the cross and see Jesus there as your Savior, that wasn't reason alone that brought you to that conclusion. That was the work of the Holy Spirit opening your eyes to see what you otherwise would be blind to, what you otherwise wouldn't be able to see apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Luther said, Christ crucified is true theology. So you want, to want, you want to know what true theology is? It's got to include Christ crucified. Christ crucified leads to true knowledge of God. If you don't, Luther went on to say, if you don't know Jesus, then you don't know the true God. I hope that you're here this morning and you know Jesus. Because if you know Jesus, you know the true God. The the converse, though, is also true. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know God. And Jesus offers himself to you. Jesus says, you can know me. That's why John wrote this gospel. All you have to do is, is believe in him and you'll have life in his name. That's John's purpose for writing. The hiddenness of Jesus. Sometimes we got to believe, church, not because of, but in spite of. To follow Jesus, I try to pray this every day. I pray first thing in the morning before I look at that phone. I get up, I walk outside. And I pray a short prayer, and it includes this. Jesus, would you help me to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you? That's what a follower of Jesus is. That's what a Christian is. It's someone who who says to Jesus, I'm following you. I'm going to do what you said. I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to deny myself and I'm going to follow you. And then I prayed that the Holy Spirit would fill me with power to do that because I can't do it on my own. To follow Jesus, to take up your cross, to deny self in moments when life's circumstances seem to contradict the claims. Just as surely as they did for Jesus. Jesus invites us to see him there hanging on the cross, the hidden king of glory, the hidden king and savior of the world, the hidden king of the ages. Do you see him there? Do you see him as a hidden king? So that's one thing we see about Jesus' kingship. He's a hidden king, he's also the universal king. Three languages. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, right outside the city. Greek was the language of culture, beauty of form and thought. The Greeks were known for these things. This is the world of culture. Christ claims ownership of it. Latin is the language of the Romans, government, law, institutions. Though it's messy, sometimes evil, Christ claims the world, that world too. And though it is sometimes messy, sometimes evil, we need Christians to be business people. We need Christians to be politicians. We need Christians who are in power, that they might bring salt and light to these arenas of public life. Hebrew, language of religion. Religion chaotic world of religion. Christ claims this world too. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He calls us to believe those things, and then he summons the law, and then he calls us. So not only does he call us to believe that, and we believe it and have life in his name, but then we join in summoning the lost millions of who who are following false gods, to follow this Jesus, the, the one who is our universal king. He's told us in John chapter 12, verse 30, John quoted Jesus. Jesus said, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. Jesus invites us to go make a difference in the world by participating in his mission to seek and save the lost. Church, are you doing that? Are you giving any of your time and energy and prayers and thought to the lost people that are all around us and and not just around us but to the ends of the earth which is the great commission that Jesus left his disciples with? Do those kinds of things concern you? Do those kinds of things, are you praying about those kinds of things? This is what it means when we say that Jesus is the universal king. Those kinds of things should, should take up our energies, should take up our passions, because, they, because they're on Jesus' heart, that we would be a church of disciples who make disciples. Jesus is a universal king. The last one, he's a personal king. He's a personal king. We see this when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. John verifies through his writing that he was faithful to the task that Jesus left him. This is personal. This is personal compassion at a moment that I marvel over. I, it is so hard for me to think about someone else when I'm in pain. I mean, everybody at my, at my house will tell you, like, if dad gets hurt, everybody's going to hear about it. <laughs> if I get sick, I put the drama on. You some of you like that? Like I'll hobble around like I'm on deathbed. And when I get into that, if I'm not careful, if God doesn't help me, then it just life just becomes about me. Jesus suffering this incredible physical, relational, emotional suffering. Not even mentioning what he's experiencing, the abandonment of the Father and the communion that they've experienced. This is incredible suffering that he is enduring. And even in that moment, he doesn't go into self-absorption mode. He looks out at his mom and he's caring and compassionate. Even as he's taking his last breath, his eyes are on other people, not himself. He didn't come to be served. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, and to serve. That's what he came to do, and he does it right until the moment that he says it is finished. He's living for others. His life says, my life for yours, and he invites us to live with that kind of compassion towards others. You might not catch this, but... When we see him saying, woman, behold your son, you're like, whoa, Jesus, can you change the language around a little bit? It's your mother you're talking to. It sounds so impersonal. It's because we don't understand the language that he's using. The Greek word for woman, gyne. It's where we get the word gynecology. It's a universal term for women, but it's also, in their their day, a title of honor. Jesus is speaking to her in terms of endearment and affection. It's like he's saying, Mom, I love you. He's going to take care of you. John, I love you. Take care of my mother. Jesus invites us to see ourselves as part of a community of compassion. Where could you do that? It's like, it's not as hard as Jesus. We're not asking you to do something on your deathbed. I'm asking you today, while you're eating and having a good time, could you take a moment to take your eyes and attention off of yourselves and put your attention on someone else and what their needs are? And could you be an expression of compassion to someone else today? That's what what Christianity is about. Only the gospel can create a mutually devoted community. Don't you want that, church? I'm so thankful. We we have people in this church that are experiencing that, that are living that. And I'm so grateful for it. But don't we want more? Last week, Gabe gets up and confesses it's been this is a hard time we're working through. But one of the one of the, the things that happened is the response of the church, the people that prayed for him for an hour after the service, people who are, who are upset but who are believing in the power of the gospel to restore text messages coming in to him and to the pastoral team that are demonstrations of a mutually devoted community. This is what the gospel wants to create in us. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could more? This church, I believe, would grow, not just in depth, but I think in breadth, if we could be people who really experience a gospel culture, where those that have failed, which is all of us, find hope in a gospel that says your failures won't have the last word over you. I want that. I want that more and more because I think that's what, that's, that's what heaven looks like. And we should be training for heaven right now. We should be. If you think you're going to live your whole life without regard for heaven and then actually like it when you get there, you're woefully confused. You will not like heaven if you don't want a little heaven on earth. And heaven on earth is following Jesus and seeking to, by the power of the Spirit, obey him and what he's called us to do. Because that's where we find at his right hand pleasures forevermore. I just went into another sermon. I don't know where this this sermon is going. What I'm trying to say is that Jesus, there on the cross, as we look at those snapshots, he's a hidden king. It takes the eyes of faith to see it. He's a a universal king. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he invites us to spread his fame. He's also a personal king. And and he invites us to to allow the gospel to so shape us that we're part of a community where we're mutually caring for one another. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen.